Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. 
And if I have a regret, if I have a regret in racing, that would be it. That I didn't solicit a good team to run for the championship. And he walked over to me and he says, I want to shake your hand. He said, you're the only stock car driver I've seen that can drive one of these cars. I said, holy mackerel, this is like my Super Modified. If I'm brave enough, it'll go as fast as I want to go. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by... Drumroll! <laughs> <laughs> presented by QWare. Now, Steve, let's go ahead and tell listeners what they have to look forward to in this episode, because I do not want to talk about our contest this week at all, period. <laughs> oh, come on now. I think we should start with it. Oh, no, 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 no. As bad a week as you had last week, <laughs> Ryan Blaney kind of let me down at Richmond. So. Yeah. That boy, Denny. <laughs> okay, Steve. This week we have the first of what I think is probably going to be a three-part interview with Donnie Allison. I had never really sat down and talked to Donnie before, so that was really interesting to me because, you know, most fans today, when they think of Donnie Allison, they think about the 1979 right. Daytona 500 and the fact that he's Bobby Allison's kid brother. But that's kind of a theme to our podcast because there is so much more to Donnie Allison than the 1979 Daytona 500 and Bobby Allison. And obviously, we're going to talk to Donnie about the 1979 Daytona 500. Right, but there is so much more. The one thing that kind of stuck with me was the fact that he still got some fire in the belly. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That Donny Allison, I know, is never afraid to speak his mind. The bottom line to me is this. Donny Allison was and is his own person. He just turned 80 years old a few days before my birthday earlier this month. So he's 80, but boy, he sure doesn't act it. He had a lot of opinions about a lot of things, and he, like you said... He wasn't afraid to share them no, at all. No, the Donnie I knew was never, never afraid to share his opinions. He spoke right up, and I think the listeners are going to find that out. And Steve, this week, the Cup Circuit is racing at Charlotte on the Roval, and we're going to go back to the October 12th, 1989 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That was a race won by Ken Schrader. Right. Ken is on the cover along with Rick Hendricks' parents. So I thought that was a pretty cool yeah, shot. I remember that. Dell Earnhardt pretty much saw his chances for the Winston Cup championship go out the window. Yeah, he gave up his lead to Rusty Wallace yes. and never got it back. Never got it back. There's also in this issue a feature story on Nancy Langley, <laughs> Elmo's wife. And in this story, Steve, the phrase, the flying fettuccine brothers (laughs) actually appears. So, you know, when I saw that, man, I knew that we had to talk about it. I knew that I had to do a little more kind of digging into the background of all that. So that's kind of an interesting side story to this issue. And then also in this issue, there's a feature story by Gary McCready. He and Cindy Karam, the chief photographer at the time, the photo editor at the time, they went and covered a, a promotional stunt by one of the local radio stations where Rusty Wallace was going to race Charlotte radio legends, John Boy and Billy through Charlotte traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the scheme. He was supposed to race through Charlotte traffic to the studios. 
where John Boy and Billy were. We got in on an scene with Gary McCready and Cindy put into another car to follow Rusty across the city at 35 miles an hour. Ha, ha, ha. Also in this issue, there is coverage of Rob Moroso's third consecutive Bush series win at Charlotte. There's a scene on the circuit item about a premonition that A.J. Foyt had. And it, yeah. Yeah, it, it read kind of spooky. I got to be honest with you. I'll tell you the truth. I'd forgotten that. But now that it comes back, that story is quite fascinating. Finally, in this issue, there's coverage of kind of a controversy involving the qualifying format for the Bush Series race that kind of handicapped the Winston Cup drivers who were entered in the It was a Humpy Wheeler scheme at Charlotte Motor Speedway amid the protests of many fans that the Winston Cup drivers were ruining the Bush Series by going in and winning the races. So, Humpy decided he'd make it more difficult for the Cup drivers to qualify for the Bush Series race. Did it ever backfire in his face? (laughs) And finally, Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Joe Rutch. John Bozard, Peter Frizzell, and Nicole Boutwell. And, you know, when I got the notification that Joe Rutch had signed up as a Patreon supporter, I knew that I had seen that name before, but I couldn't quite place it. I was like, where have I seen that name before? And so I looked him up on Twitter, couldn't necessarily find him on Twitter. But yesterday he tweeted and said that he had gotten his Darlington Prize package. He had written one of the letters to the editor oh, in the okay. same commemorative sure, issue. Sure. So, and we do have a few more Darlington Grand National Scene commemorative issues left. $5 a month or more on Patreon, and you will receive one of these just absolutely beautiful commemorative issues, plus at least one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. Do $5 a month, you'll get one copy of Winston Cup Scene. $10 a month, you'll get two. $20 a month, you'll get four. So that's kind of the way that that's going to work. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would rather do just a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. So help us out on Patreon. You guys fuel this podcast you help us do this each and every week and steve the content i'm proud of our content because we're getting awesome interviews every week for this podcast talking to people who made a big impact on this sport our patreon supporters and our paypal supporters and our sponsorship from qware and brian kelb they make it all happen. Well, I think what the result of all this has been is not only a raising education for our listeners, but they're having a lot of fun with it, too, because I know we are. Donnie, you made one Grand National start in 1966, and then in 1967, you ran not quite half of the Grand National races. Were you still living in Florida at the time, or had you already moved to Alabama? No, I I was in Alabama. Okay, all right. Yeah, I moved to Alabama for good in 64. And in 1968, you get a ride with Banjo Matthews. And before we started recording, you had kind of talked about Banjo and his importance to the sport. Was that basically kind of your turning point in your career? Was that your first big ride that you felt pretty confident in? Well, that was my first factory ride. But right. I had rode the Chevelle that Bobby built and done very very well with it. In fact, I should have won Asheville 
on the river, and and I I couldn't sit up in the seat and drive anymore. I was holding myself in with my arms, but oh wow, you know because it's just around in a circle. It's four hundred laps. Petty sat on the pole, and I sat outside pole, and I took the lead the first lap, and I led three quarters or more of the race, and Jim Pascal passed me and, and, and won the race. But then the next year, I got the opportunity to drive with John Thorne. And we had a Dodge when it first started. He had a Dodge, and then, then he got a Fairlane, you know, got hooked up with, with Ralph Moody. And and uh, I really did well in that thing. I didn't, But I should have won the Southern 500 that year. If you go back and look at the history book, at okay. the end of the race, I was leading the race, and I caught G.C. Spencer coming off turn four, the old turn four. And uh, he jumped out of the gas real quick, and I had to back off, and I did. I hit the wall and knocked the battery out of it. And But I had that race won. And then, then I got the opportunity to drive for banjo, um, and really it was a, a, a weird situation as I was in a lot of times. I found myself in some pretty weird situations like that. Why, I don't know whether I caused it or somebody else caused it, but um, I got the opportunity the first time to drive banjo's car um, after the Daytona 500 in 68, um, they said Banjo's going on a test at Atlanta and he wants you to go with him. And he was in the infield care center. I remember this like it was yesterday. So I went over and he wanted me to drive him to Atlanta. Well, anyway, I went to Atlanta and I ran really good on the test. It was freezing water across the track and Leroy Yarbrough was there. And I never drove a car like that. And um, I had said to Banjo, I need all the help I can get. He said, it's a race car, just drive it. <laughs> and, you know, that that was his commentary. You know, he never got into a, a drawn-out conversation, as you as you well know. But uh, but anyway, they came to me and said they were going to let me run Rockingham, but I had to run a 427, meaning I had to run 100 pounds more weight in the little car and everything like that. And uh, I, I was tickled. I didn't care if I had to run two weights. The race got rained out. Well, when I came back to that particular race— I won it with a 427. And strangely enough, Bobby won, wins his first 500-mile race at Rockingham in 1967, and I win my first 500-mile race at Rockingham in 1968. So with anyway, Bobby in second place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that that's— Which made it even better. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the way the history was with, with the banjo thing. And he and I got along really well. I knew him a little tiny bit in Florida, not very much. I didn't go to the races much, but— in Miami as a spectator until I started driving. But anyway, uh, Banjo Matthews was a world of information walking around in one person. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go ahead and get to drive his car more than that. The only thing I regretted is I never got to run for a championship. You know, we just run partial uh, schedule. And I don't know whether it was because I was satisfied to run that many races, Grand National, and go back and run my own short track cars. I was winning a lot of races in short yeah. track. Yeah. Uh, I dominated in Supers for about a year and a half at Mobile, Pensacola, and around there. Then I dominated at BIR for longer than that in my own cars. Birmingham? And Birmingham, yeah. BIR, yes. Yeah. BIR, Montgomery, Huntsville, yeah. places yeah. like that. But anyway, I don't know whether that pacified me or or the reason why I didn't go out and really solicit a, a championship car or a team to run for the championship. And if I have a regret, if I have a regret in racing, that would be it. 
that I didn't solicit a good team to run for the championship. Because if I had, I probably would have won it. You mentioned your first win in June of 1968 at Rockingham. Bobby was second uh, a couple of laps back. You also won at Bristol in March of 70 and Talladega in May of 71. Again, both of those races with Bobby in second place. Winning those races was big for you. But what did it mean to you to beat Bobby in particular? Well, you know, really at the time, I can't remember that it was an emphasis on that. Okay. Uh, You know, I I was there to win, and regardless of who was running. You know, everybody used to say to me, well, about my brother being out there, and I said, was he out there? I wasn't aware of that. You know, he was another competitor to me, and and I think that time period – the drivers didn't pay attention who the other driver was. They just wanted to win. You ran a couple of Indianapolis 500s and actually finished fourth as a rookie in 1970. How did that deal come about? Well, you know, I I was fairly good speaking friends with A.J. Foyt and whenever he ran a cup race, a grand national race at the time. And I used to say to him, about every time I was around him, uh, when are you going to let me drive one of your Indy cars? And his response to that was always, uh, you're a taxi driver. You can't drive an Indy car. <laughs> That's what he called stock cars, yeah, a taxi yeah, yeah. driver. You know, I had ran Super Modified for two years and really did well. And I just wanted to drive an Indy car. I made a statement when I was a very young boy, and it was brought up to me two or three times later on that I was going to win the Indy 500. I didn't have any idea I'd ever run the Indy 500. Yeah. And, but I made that statement as, as a young boy. I didn't even race. But uh, in 1970 at Daytona in February, I went to Foyt and I said, why don't you let me drive one of your Indy cars? And he looked at me and he says, you really want to drive one, don't you? I said, yes, I wouldn't be pestering you if I didn't want to drive yeah. one. He says, well, I'll call you. Well, I'd heard that plenty of times, you know. (laughs) But oddly enough, he did. He called me. And he said, come to Houston, um, and I'll get you with my dad, Tony. And you never call him dad or father. It's Tony. And show you what you're going to run in the end. Well, I went out there, and we walked in the back shop, and up in the rack was a tub. It was an eagle, a 68 Gurney Eagle. And he said, that's what you're going to run. He said, you and Tony put it together. So we did. And I went to Indy the first time on a test with him. And he said, you want to take a ride? I said, yes. Well, his favorite thing at the time was fold a blanket up, the Goodyear blanket they covered the nose up with, put it in the seat because you don't move the seat, you move the steering and the pedal, and take it for a ride. Well, Clarence Cagle was there, and he pretty well run things at Speedway. And he said to me, you run over 120 mile, miles an hour, and you'll not take a rookie test here. So I just avoid I'll just run part of the racetrack and back off and run another part and back off and do it like that. Well, I was really nervous because at the time, the cars had two-speed transmissions in them, and everybody yeah. stalled them leaving pit road. You know, I mean, it was a, even the good drivers would stall them. Well, I got in that car and got all hooked up and ready to go, and I was so proud of myself because I never stalled it. <laughs> and it was it was a weird situation because I go out on the racetrack and I'm I'm running slow, warming up. Well, 
probably 100 mile an hour or whatever it is, and, and I mashed the throttle. Well, it, it doesn't run. It just, oh, like that. And I, and I said, well, I thought they said these things accelerated. And about that time, the boost came in the motor. <laughs> and holy mackerel, my, my, knee, <laughs> my knee hit my chin. I backed off so fast. But anyway, we, we had a good test and go back for the race. And I really, I really had a rough month. Did you? Oh, yes. Um, first part of the month. Well, Floyd, he runs things anyway. He tells everybody what to do, including USAC and all. He thinks. But <laughs> but anyway, he tells me, when you go on your rookie test, do not go in the ripples and turn one in the apron. Do not go in there. He said, I don't care what USAC tells you, you do not go in them ripples. Well, we had a orientation with the rookies, and they emphasize if you don't run through those ripples, We'll stop your test immediately, and you will not take the rest of it. So I go out the very first time. I go in them ripples and spin out. You hit the ripples. <laughs> I mean, it was like the speed bumps when you come up to a railroad track or something. Yeah. You know? And, well, anyway, then Floyd, he blew up. He, he he screamed and hollered at me like I was a two-year-old, screamed and hollered at USAC. He went down to the USAC office, and he really raised hell. That's hard to imagine of AJ. Yeah, yeah hard, hard. <laughs> but anyway, all I've taken is one phase of my rookie test, and I've got four. So that's three more I've got. And USAC came down to the garage and said, okay, we want you to go out, and you run all three phases of your rookie test so you don't have to come back in. And I don't know anybody else that did that, but I, I ran the final three stages of my rookie test and never came back in. Well, I passed that. And things were going pretty good, I felt like, by that time. Well, everybody had wings on their noses, you know. And I kept raising sand with Foyt. I wanted some wings on my nose, you know, to hold the nose. And he didn't want to put them on there. Well, I kept on. He said, okay. So he got the sheet metal man to make them. And I get ready to go out the first time. Well, the, the biggest sin at Indy is to go on a racetrack and not look at that windsock and see which way the wind's blowing. Because down the back straightaway, there's an opening going in turn three of a, of a road that comes, you know, infield road, and there's no stands or nothing there, and it's like a funnel for the air coming through there. So anyway, I go out on the racetrack with his wings, and I, my warm-up lap, it felt pretty good. Well, I come down that back straightaway the first time, <laughs> and I come to that opening, and when I do, it sticks the nose in the ground, spins 360 degrees, and I hit the wall straight ahead, and I bit my tongue. Oh. And oh, I bumped my knees a little bit, but it didn't hurt me really. And my, my tongue bled pretty bad. So they take me to the infield care center. And when I come out, Foyt was sitting there on a cart. I knew he was going to wreck. I went down the corner. I knew, I knew he was going to. I said, well, why the hell didn't you tell me I was going to wreck? <laughs> anyway... He said, are you all right? I said, yeah. I said, uh, the only thing I bit my tongue. Bit your tongue? How'd you do that? I said, just for the wall. I said, oh. <laughs> and anyway, we it took eight days to fix a the car. They had to put a new bulk, make a new bulk, put it in everything like that. My first time lap after the crash was the fastest lap I'd run there. Well, 
Then it was uphill. You know, of course, he wouldn't put no wings back on it. We had to make a whole new nose, a whole nine yards. But anyway, um, race day. It rained. Terrible, terrible. And we even got in the cars and made a lap or two, and, and they stopped us. We all got out, and we were under umbrella, and everybody said, you're not nervous? I said, no. I said, I've done everything I can do now. It's time to run the race. And they couldn't get over it. I was sitting around there, I guess, appearing to be relaxed as I was, which I, I, I probably was. Well, anyway, then the race started, and I was good. My car was good. Um, I felt good. Uh, the last 15 laps, of the last 10 laps of the race, Mario Andretti, Bobby Unser, and myself passed each other about 10 times before I finally was able to get ahead of them and stay ahead of them. In fact, after the race, Foyt was so mad because he tore his transmission. I whatever he did, I don't know, but he was mad. He had a, all the hoopla for a big party in the garage and had to, all shut up, and he wasn't nobody in there, and he told Chester Honey, got a guy with me from Alabama, not to let nobody in the door. Well, it's not come on the door, and Chester opened the door a little bit, and it was A.J. Watson, and he was Bobby Unser's crew chief. And he looked, and Foyt said, let him in. Well, he looked over at Foyt, and he said, sorry, you had bad luck. He said, I want to speak to Allison. And he walked over to me, and he says, I want to shake your hand. He said, you're, you're the only stock car driver i seen they can drive one of these cars. Now, if that's not a compliment, I don't oh, know, yeah. what, he, I don't know yeah. what he is. And I don't know if anybody else has got one like that. <laughs> that kind of opens up my next question. Exactly how different was driving a stock car at that time from driving an Indy car? I mean, it has to be night and day difference, I would imagine. Oh, very, very, very different driving. A uh, stock car goes in the corner and slides all around. Any car goes in the corner and sticks. Um, you could do with any car throttle like you would like to have done with a stock car <laughs> throttle, but yeah, couldn't do yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was very, very precise, in command with your hands. You know, when you took an Indy car, you got to the corner and you turned the wheel, it turned. And as a result, you didn't have to turn very much. You know, if you got kept your foot in the throttle like like you needed to do, you didn't have to worry about turning the wheel much. The car would go through the corner like that. A stock car, even though I had some really good ones at Daytona Beach, you still slid a lot, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't spoke about a lot because that was the normal procedure of a stock car. And when I got to an Indy car, I said, "Holy mackerel, this is like my super modified." If I'm brave enough. <laughs> It'll go as fast as I want to go. And see, that was the way my uh, wing modifieds were. If you, if you were brave enough to hold the throttle down, they would stick. Was there ever a point where going to IndyCar racing was an option for you on a more regular basis? Or were you pretty much settled on driving in NASCAR? Well, see, uh, we had to go to 71. In 1971, again, I had a very terrible month. Uh, I was in an old Coyote. Um, I qualified 171 or whatever I qualified. I was going to get bumped. Chris Loff in Granitelli's car was going to bump me. He ran every lap faster than I qualified, and Foyt couldn't stand that. He didn't. He worried about me. He didn't want his car bumped by Granitelli. <laughs> and 
He had a brand new straight side of car. His car had a pot on the left for extra fuel, like they let him run it. But he had a brand new straight side of car that never had been run. Well, he got it ready and took it out and practiced. And he ran like 173, something like that. And when he came in, his favorite thing, uh, fold the blanket up and take it for a ride. So I did. My first lap was 174. So I came in, and when I pulled up to the pit there and stopped, he come over and he said, you like that car pretty good, don't you? I said, yeah, I can drive this car. He said, go make it fit you. In other words, move it. And I had a half-inch block on the steering over what he had. Anyway, I went and did it. And when I came back out to practice just before qualifying, all the cars were lining up, qualifying line. Granatelli's car with Chris Law is first in line. When I went out pit road on the racetrack, the caution light came on. Well, Bob Vice had hit the wall coming off two, and the kamikaze pilots were out then at that time, yeah. you know, the second week. Well, I came around, came in pit road. They're running down pit road, motioning me to get in the qualifying line. Now, I run this car three t- three laps, okay, maybe four with a slow one. Well, Foyt walks up to the car, and I got the full face helmet and all the so- underwear on. And the first year, I didn't run that. Second yeah, year, I had yeah. to run that. And he says, I'm going to withdraw that other car. You're going to qualify this one. What? He says, I'm going to withdraw that other car, and you're going to qualify this one. So he goes up to the little stand they have on pit road with the USAC officials, and him and Grant and Telly, I can see them. You know, they're probably 40 yards from me, and their arms are flapping. And <laughs> might, might have been a little bit further than 40 yards. But anyway, they're, they're in a big heated discussion about withdrawing that car and me qualifying the other one. I don't know what they're saying. I can't hear them. But, but anyway, Voight. Left that meet, came back to the car. He says, I got that done. He said, you're going to qualify this car. He said, you're going to run as fast as you can run the first lap because we're going to time you. If you're not fast enough, I'm going to throw the yellow flag. Well, I looked up to him and I said, Foyt, if this car don't feel good, I ain't driving it. You can take the yellow flag and put it where the sun don't shine because I, I don't give a damn. <laughs> He said, if, if we give you a number on the board, the magnetic board, put your hand up and take time. I got a tack. I know how fast I'm going. I don't need nobody to tell me what stopwatch or how fast I'm going. I run the first lap over 175 miles an hour, my warm-up lap. <laughs> and I put my hand up and take my time. Well, I ran 174, 8 or 9, 170. My last lap, I slowed down 172, 8. When I came in pit road and stopped, his question to me was, how come you slowed down so much your last lap? Not a good job. You made the race and all that kind of stuff. Well, we had a wing on the back of that car. I had wings on the front. That was that was really a good car. Carburation day, which was right after qualifying, the only car that ran faster than me one lap was Al Hunter. Nobody else ran as fast as I ran. My car was good. I mean, we adjusted the wing in the back a little bit, made some adjustments, and it was really, really good. I mean, got ready to go race morning, and USAC had a new gauge to measure the wing, and mine was too high. Voice was a half inch too high. They made him put it down, and it raised all kind of sand. When I got there, mine was a little bit over a half inch high. And Voice, you're going to kill him. He's not a, he's a stock car driver. He didn't drive anything. But anyway... They put it down, 
And believe me, I ran the whole race loose as a goose and still finished sixth. After the race was over, I had a couple more races I was going to do. I said to Foyt, I said, why don't you let me run for the championship? You concentrate on Indy. You want to win it four times, you can run the big three. You run Indy, Pocono, Ontario, and maybe Milwaukee because it's such a historic thing. He said, you'd run one of these cars? I said, yep. The only thing I'd give up my stock car for is to drive a car for you. And my dad asked me, what did he say? I said, I'm not driving for him, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the deal with the Wood Brothers come about? Because that was the same year, 1971, that you drove for them, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know whether that was a Ford deal or how that transpired. I never asked. And, and again, that was... I think that was probably one of my downfalls is I didn't inquire about why things were happening. I just okay. I took advantage of them. Like I, I got a phone call from Wood Brothers, and they said, we want you to come to Stewart, Virginia. So I went, and Glenn said, uh, we want you to drive our car. Very good. So I went back with Leonard in the shop and looked at a car, and we talked about it, and that's how that transpired. And the reason why I say I think Ford did it, because, you know, when I when I got out of that car, I was taken out of that car, David Pierce was put in it, and he was the main Ford driver. And Ford Motor Company has been behind the Woods Brothers from day one to present today. In fact, Etzel Ford and I are very, very close friends, uh, and that's his race car. So you had some success with them, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty good. Yeah. You know, if I'd have finished every race, if the motor hadn't blown up, I'd have won Darlington. Mm -hmm. I'd have won Talladega the second time. I only ran, uh, what I run, 10 races with them or whatever? I, yeah, 10 or 11, something yeah, like that. Something yeah, something like that. And I had Michigan one, run out of gas. Did the ones that got away from you maybe stick with you more than maybe even the wins? I think in all the racing, the one that sticks with me the worst is Darlington. Because in 70? No, in every, every okay, you okay. See, I should have won the race of Banjo's car. First, I should have won a John Thorne's car. Then I should have won a Banjo's car. Then I should have won it in the Woods Brothers car. And then Haas's car should have won it five times. Wow. I led two and a half years with races with Haas Ellington. And I, I don't know why I couldn't win. I have no idea. I couldn't win that, and I couldn't win the Daytona 500. And those were the two that really used to, that, that's what really irked me the whole time. Uh, you know, everybody talks about Pearson and Darlington, only Darlington or, or Earnhardt. This cat right here run pretty good there, buddy. And if you want to go back and look at the record books and you look at all the race of who led what and when where, my name's in there a lot. Steve, let's talk about our new presenting sponsor, QWare. QWare is the most simple-to-use cloud-based computerized maintenance management system on the market. Every commercial building, whether it is a school, factory, medical building, office building, or even a house of worship, needs regular maintenance and care. 
QWare helps maintenance teams keep track of everything that matters to your facility. From HVAC equipment to physical assets and inventory, QWare is the go-to tool for thousands of maintenance workers every day. QWare has work order and preventative maintenance processing, tracking, and communication, so your team can just plain get stuff done. You can track all of your assets and equipment, and store every bit of your documentation in QWare. You can get the information you need with just a tap on your cell phone screen. QWare's inventory management lets you track your consumable inventory so that your team knows which supplies to order so you never run out. The QWare Events Tracker allows your users to schedule space and assets so that you can be sure that your facility is not overbooked and you can have the right people in place at the right time for setup and tear down. QWare is the easiest facility management solution on the market today. If you want to be sure your facility is running at its very best, then you need to talk to the team at QWare. You can visit QWare online at qwarecmms.com slash scene. That's Q-W-A-R-E-C-M-M-S dot com slash scene. Qware. Maintain excellence. Steve, like I said in the intro to this show, when people think of Donnie Allison, they think of a couple of different things. They think of the 1979 Daytona 500. They think of him being Bobby's kid brother. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know a whole lot about Donnie's career until I started doing the research for this interview. But it was kind of amazing to me the impact that he had on this sport throughout basically the 1970s. I was surprised by his personality. He was very matter-of-fact about a lot of things. And about certain things, he still had some fire in the belly. Well, sure. He got very intense about a couple of things. That was Donnie. Uh, He had a very sporadic Winston Cup career. There's no doubt about that. Uh, That might have been a matter of choice. I don't know, but I'm sure we can talk about it. But at the same time, he was kind of an easygoing guy, but highly, highly competitive. When he did compete, he was a very strong competitor, and he was very opinionated, and he had his own principles, no doubt about it. But most of the time, he was kind of an easygoing guy. Donnie talked about the fact that if he had one regret, and he did make sure to kind of qualify that, he said, if I had a regret about my racing career, it was the fact that he never really went out and pursued an opportunity that would have allowed him to run for a championship. He never, in all of his career, he never came close to even running a full schedule just once. The most races in Winston Cup that ever ran was 20. You know, one time in uh, 1967, I believe, and again in 1979. His most competitive and, I think, career-defining season was 1979. So part-time teams that Donnie was with were usually very, very competitive. But by the same token, he never moved on from that. He never really took advantage of any opportunity he may have had to run for a championship. He was with Banjo Matthews. Yeah. He was with the Wood Brothers. Yep. He was the first driver for Die Guard Die Racing. Die Guard, 1976. And yeah, let me tell you, he's got some opinions about that. <laughs> I bet he does. <laughs> and we'll get to that part of the interview next week. He also, after he left Die Guard, 
went to drive for Hoss Ellington. So he had some really competitive rides, right. but they were rides that at that time weren't focused on running for the championship. No. They came in and they ran the bigger races, probably the races that paid more money, maybe that had a little bit of television exposure. Maybe it's hindsight being 2020. I don't know that it was a conscious decision that he made back then to say, you know, I just don't want to run. It was just the way that the chips came to him. Yeah. And these were competitive rides. Well, that's the way it was back then. It was kind of a two-fold situation. Teams looked at it this way. If they had sponsorship money, how much was it and how much of that could they be able to use? And usually it wasn't enough to run for a championship. So they they, uh, picked the races they could thought they could do well in number one and uh, most of those were super speedway races because they paid more so if you're going to race on a part-time basis you want to go where the money is now the teams that ran for a championship you stop and think about them all of them were well-sponsored teams of course stp comes to mind and there were some others along those days that came around but there were only about four or five teams that had an actual chance to win the championship. So that's pretty much the way it was. It was economics and competition. Which one would benefit the other most? And Donnie wasn't alone in this. You could point to a handful of drivers who were pretty much in the same boat running partial schedules. David Pearson comes to mind. Right. Buddy Baker is one of those that didn't run for the championship earlier in his career. So this was kind of the norm at the time. To point out something that was going on at this time, there would have been a lot fewer cars in NASCAR races had not planned money come into existence. And this is what benefited the low-budget independent drivers. Now, you talk about running for a championship. These guys had no chance at a championship. In fact, they were handpicking their own races until they got this planned money. And this plan money was given to them by NASCAR if they entered and tried to qualify every race on the schedule. So that put them at a different level now, and they were able to run more often. But they weren't running for a championship. They were running for points. They wanted to go out there and finish as high as they could in points because that brought them even more money and could spell the difference between profit and loss. It seemed like the championship didn't seem to have quite the attraction back then that it does now. Was it just simply a matter of dollar and cents like you're talking about? That sounds very simple. But when you get to right to the core of it, yeah, that's, that was about what it was. It was a matter of dollars and cents. And the championship, let's face it, paid good money for the time, but nowhere near at the scale of today. Yeah. And the, I know there's inflation and all right, that, right, but, you right. know, prices have gone up and everything. But if you were to mark the difference between what a championship paid then and what a championship pays now, you will find that today's payment is much stratospherically higher. When I asked Donnie about his relationship to Bobby, he kind of told me about a story where reporters came to him after a race and asked him about Bobby. Donnie said, was he in the race today? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't notice. All I saw was another car out there. So, That's exactly the way they were. They yeah. were competitive, but the fraternal business went out the window when they went to race, okay? Now, I firmly believe that if something had happened, to one or the other on the track in the same race they were in. Well, being brothers would have come right back into the picture. Well, I think it did in Daytona in 1979. And it certainly did between Davey and Bobby later on. That same type of 
family relationship came into play. But when it was on the track and they were competing against each other, that's what they were, competitors. Steve, I always think it's kind of interesting when I toss in an extra question, kind of at the last moment, just kind of a throwaway question. I asked Donnie a question about him finishing fourth in the 1970 Indy 500 and then, you know, running the Indy 500 the next year and ran sixth. I expected him to say, yeah, the cars were different and I enjoyed the situation, but my heart was always in NASCAR and I figured that we would have went on to the rest of the interview. But when I talked to him about Indy, yeah, that was something that he wanted to talk about. That's something that he wanted to discuss. And he wound up talking about it for quite some time. The thing that I thought was kind of funny, though, was (laughs) the fact that A.J. Foyt (laughs) was Donnie Allison's car owner. (laughs) Talk about what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object. (laughs) I think one of the reasons is Donnie likes to talk about it, Indy, so extensively, if you look at it and reason it, it was probably the high watermark of his auto racing career. This was not going out and running a limited schedule in NASCAR, although that's where his heart was. He was in an H.J. Ford's car for the Indianapolis 500, and he finishes fourth and sixth in his two attempts. Uh, man, that, that's quite a feather in his cap. And I can understand why he would be interested in talking about that. When you think about it, here's Donny Allison at Indianapolis, which is run only once a year, okay? And it's clearly the premier all-racing event, probably certainly in the United States, maybe in the world. He goes there and teams up with A.J. Foyt, and he finishes fourth one year and sixth the other year. Donny Allison is a star for two years at Indianapolis, No part-time racer in NASCAR, and no so-called in the shadow of his brother who was running for a championship. He was his own man on his own stage at Indianapolis. And he actually talked about it. He made the proposition to A.J., let Donnie run for the championship and let A.J. kind of concentrate on winning Indy, how NASCAR history might have changed if he had, in fact, pursued an Indy career. Perhaps it would not have altered NASCAR too much if Donnie had moved on to Indy. But you have to wonder what Donnie might have done with his own driving career had he been successful in regular IndyCar competition. Things would certainly not be the same. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, we talked about A.J. Foyt in the Donnie Allison segment, and we're actually going to be talking about A.J. in our second segment. And Brian, (laughs) it's amazing what he comes up with. Brian texted me a photo yesterday of a size large T-shirt featuring A.J. Foyt's Copenhagen-sponsored NASCAR effort. Now so, there is a collector's item. What, that number 14? Was it an Oldsmobile? It was an Olds. I think, I think it was. Yeah, I believe it was an Olds. So, yeah, A.J. Foyt, Copenhagen, NASCAR, you can't go wrong with that. So <laughs> <laughs> go check it out on Twitter and Instagram, at Speedway Screens, and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the October 12th, 1989 issue of Winston Cup Scene carried coverage of the fall Charlotte race that year. <laughs> and your buddy, Ken Schrader, won. 
And he got around Mark Martin with 14 laps to go and cruised to a 3.75 second win over Harry Gant. The backstory to this is that you actually lived pretty close to Ken and Andrew. Yeah, he was a block away. So you passed his house basically every day. What is your best Ken Schrader story? Well, there was that a, we can tell on a family. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> One time he gave me a call and he said, "Come on up here to his house." Uh, Budweiser had given him a tapping unit that he put into his den, and he wanted me to check it out. So I went up there and looked at this nice unit. And uh, of course, he just said, "Well, here, let's try one." So I got a couple of mugs, and he pulled that tap handle, and there were two beers, and we sat down, we talked racing, everything, finished the beer. I said, well, I got to go. He said, no, 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 you got to stay. I said, well, I got to go. No, stay, stay. Here, come over here. Come over here. Pour two more glasses of beer. I don't know if I yeah. want to know well, where this is headed. <laughs> after, after we finished the second glass of beer, uh, he said, come on, come on, let me give you another one over here. That's a wait a minute, Ken. I'll explain something to you here. I know what you're trying to do, and you are going to lose big time if you're going to try to match me beer for beer. <laughs> well, make a long story short, we finished the evening and uh, went and on. the keg. Uh, well, not really, but <laughs> felt like it. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I went on back home, and then uh, the weekend came around, and I was at the racetrack, and Benny Ertel of all people who at the time worked with Mark Martin very closely. He came up to me and said, what the hell did you do to Ken Schrader? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, I saw him the other day and he looked bleary-eyed and I had no sleep. And I said to him, what's wrong? What happened to you? And he said, oh, I tried to get way drunk up here. <laughs> and it didn't work. <laughs> and Schrader said he could barely get out of bed the next morning. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. I warned him. I told him, you're not going to win this. And it turned out he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't exactly know how we're going to follow up on that one. But Mark Martin had led that race four times for 107 laps. But then at the very end, he had a blistered tire and wound up finishing third behind Schrader and Harry Gant. He had a sizable lead over Ken Schrader, but he had to pit. And he took on four tires during that pit stop. Fifteen laps later, Kenny came in the pit, took on two right sides only, and came out three seconds behind Mark and began to run him down. Bill Elliott led the most laps that day. He led four times for 126 laps, but he broke uh, the locker on his car rear end and couldn't get any traction. He had started from the pole, and Steve, he stood to win. $341,607. As part of the Unical Challenge for drivers that won the race after starting from the pole. Oh, yeah. 341000 bucks. That was sizable back then, believe that, me. Yeah, that was a lot of money back then. So he wound up finishing fourth. And in this issue, there is a sidebar featuring Richard Broom, who is Schrader's crew chief at the time. And <laughs> Jake Elder was working <laughs> with the team at the time as a chassis specialist. And as hard as it is to believe, Steve, there were rumors that Jake might be headed somewhere else. Oh, really? (laughs) And Richard Broom was quoted in this sidebar as saying, Jake is my right hand. I can't do without him. He seems to think I can, but I ain't letting him go nowhere. He's (laughs) either going to stay with this team or I'm going to take him out back and we're going to see who's the best man. Well, guess what? Guess what? (laughs) Jake Elder wound up leaving the team 
And I guess he went to Rob Moroso's cup deal in I think so. the year nineteen. But they didn't call him Suitcase Jake for nothing. Steve, what was it about him? Why did he hit the road so often? Jake was a perfectionist, yeah. and he was also very temperamental. And when he felt that his ideas were not being accepted, when he felt he was not allowed to run things the way he wanted to run them, then he just moved on. He didn't stay in one place because he felt he had to, let's put it that way. He left because it wasn't the situation he wanted in his own mind. In his own mind, what do you think the perfect situation would have been? Or did that even exist to him? Well, I'm not sure what he thought, but the perfect existence for Jake would have been, hey, let's do things my way. And he thought that he had proven himself that his way was the successful way. And when he felt that was slighted, he moved on. Steve, another aspect to this race is the fact that Dale Earnhardt went into this event 75 points ahead of Rusty Wallace, but then experienced a blown engine just 13 laps into the race. Didn't even have a chance to get his uniform sweaty Mm -hmm. and dropped out of the race and went from 75 points ahead of Rusty to 35 points behind, and that was it for his title hopes in 1989. That was a death sentence to his title hopes right there because he never regained the lead Rusty led for the rest of the season to win his first ever championship by 12 points. 12 points. Over Dale. Yeah. And, you know, Rusty did have some problems later that season. We talked about last year, the Phoenix race. He got into it with Stan Barrett, and there was a big controversy over that. But Dale Earnhardt never again got the lead. Yeah, never did. And Rusty said at the time, well... I hate to see it in one way, but I don't in another because it's about time Dale had some bad luck. And he rattled off about three or four races where he had the bad luck, and Dale went on to press his lead for the championship. Steve, there was a feature story (laughs) in this issue on Nancy Langley, (laughs) who was at the time the banquet manager for Charlotte Speedway Club. So basically, she catered all the food and everything to all the different events that they had there, certainly on race weekends and everything. She and Elmo Langley had been married in 1957, but then about 1979 or so, they decided to live apart. And according to Kim Nash, who was the writer of this story, Nancy said that she and Elmo were, quote, still married and remained the best of friends. She emphasizes there is no bitterness involved in the separation, and they can depend on each other for just about anything, end quote. Now, that's a kind of interesting relationship well, there. I would say so. Uh, if it was what Nancy said it was, uh, interesting is, you know, one word to use for a couple like this, but the other word I would use would be uh, somewhat amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there wasn't any animosity and they truly did get along that well... Hey, more power to them. Right. Who can say what was right or wrong in that deal? But the story mentions the fact that she remained very close with Linda Petty, who was Richard's wife, and Colleen Baker, who had been married to Buddy, Buddy's ex-wife. And every summer, the three of them would make a point of vacationing together. I believe they actually went to the Bahamas together, according to this. Unbelievable. You know what? That just speaks well of all three of those ladies, that they can maintain their friendship 
all through their turbulent situations and keep close ties with each other. Well, I think it also says something about the sisterhood of the racing wives, because at that time, it was a pretty tough job to, for lack of a better way to put it, stand by your man when there wasn't quite as much money in the sport and there were maybe the facilities for the families to hang out in. You know, certainly there weren't any motor coaches at this time. But they remained close, I think, through those hardships. And Nancy actually said in this story that if Richard and Elmo happened to get into it on the racetrack, it didn't impact her relationship with Linda. So I thought that was kind of cool. That is another positive for those ladies. Now, Steve, (laughs) that being said, in this story, I maintain is one of the greatest single paragraphs in the history of Winston Cup scene. Okay? Talking about Nancy and Elmo's children. And the paragraph reads as follows. Today, Roddy, who traveled with his father when he was 13 and 14 years old, is a mechanic with the city of Charlotte. Billy and Butch are electricians, and Stephen is a juggler touring with the Flying Fettuccine Brothers for six months in Japan. You have got to be kidding me. A juggler. (laughs) That took a turn somewhere in there. You know, Roddy was a mechanic, Billy and Butch were electricians, and Stephen is a juggler with the Flying Fettuccine Brothers. (laughs) Yeah, well, as as far as apples falling close to tree goes, uh, Stephen was a right good mile away. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, of course, when I saw that, I had to dig into it a little bit, and I had to do a search. And today, Steve Langley is a bubbleologist who is in the Guinness Book of World Records a couple of times for an event that took place in Wales, United Kingdom, in an ancient castle. They did some kind of deal where several bubbleologists were at this thing, and they did a couple of different bubble events, and they wound up in the Guinness Book of World Records. So, and he's actually been on TV. He's actually been on you know, Jimmy Fallon, I believe. So he's actually got a pretty nice little gig going for himself. Well, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> And today, he can be found at SoapBubbleCircus.com. He does actually kind of goes out and does his own thing, and he brings a lot of joy to a lot of different people. So I think that was pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool, too. More power to it. <laughs> so the Flying Fettuccine Brothers did appear in Westinghouse <laughs> at one point. Now, we talked in the intro about the race between Rusty Wallace and John Boyd and Billy, who are here in Charlotte are yeah. legends. Yeah. They are local legends in the radio market. And Gary and Cindy went and covered this race, and they thought they were going to be able to ride with Rusty. That didn't quite pan out, so they actually tailed Rusty through this Charlotte traffic. You mentioned the fact that Rusty had kind of, I don't want to say cheated, but he had taped a piece of paper over his speedometer, and there were 35s all around the dial. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you this. Gary got back from that race, and he said, I don't know how in the world to write this. I said, well, you know, there's certain words you can't use in this story, but I know you said them. So why don't you just give a bunch of marks, you know, uh, ampersands and all this, the usual marks for cursing. Why don't you do that? That story was full. (laughs) (laughs) Well, evidently, all the cursing was between Cindy and Gary. (laughs) They're adding each other a couple of times. Don't do this. Don't do that. Watch where you're going. Don't follow him that way. We're up a one-way street. Well, you know, if I'm tasked with following Rusty Wallace through Charlotte traffic and there's a race involved, 
yeah, I'm going to be doing some choice words of my own. (laughs) (laughs) Reading this story, it kind of brought to mind some of the crazy events that you and I have covered over the years and some of the stunts and dog and pony shows and and that kind of thing. What's the craziest promotion that you've ever been part of? Well, (laughs) naturally it involved Humpy Wheeler. And this was back in the late 70s when the rivalry on paper, on the track, uh, between Cale Yarborough and Daryl Walter was at full bore. Cale had given Daryl the nickname Jaws, okay? And Cale was sponsored by Holly Farms Poultry. Well, at the Speedway, one day, somebody put up a post with a shark hanging from it. A real shark. And in that shark's mouth was a chicken. (laughs) So this inspired Humpy to have a chicken plucking contest. All right? And he invited several members of the media, only I accepted, (laughs) and, and other race car drivers and celebrities to be there and start plucking these chickens, feather by feather by feather. Finally, I got a big handful of them, and I see Humpy talking to somebody on a microphone. So I run up behind him and stuff these feathers down the back of his shirt. Oh, hello. <laughs> well, it turned out to be. He laughed about it. I laughed about it. My event is kind of tame in comparison, but at Myrtle Beach, they had the NASCAR Speed Park there that had just opened. So it was an event for the NASCAR Speed Park racing go-karts. I say that, and the smile breaks out on your face. If I looked like a Sasquatch <laughs> on a go-kart, go-kart in a full-size car, just imagine what I looked like on an actual go-kart, okay? <laughs> yeah, Sasquatch on a roller skate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cart had quite a bit of downforce. <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of downforce on that cart, but we were there for the Bush Series race at Myrtle Beach, and Steve, you know a little bit about my history with Buckshot Jones, and before I got off pit road, Buckshot had hit me from behind and (laughs) spun me out on pit road, okay? Hey, boy, Buckshot. Okay? Now, I get out on the racetrack, and I'm going around, and I'm not competitive or anything. Well, Tony Stewart... Tony Stewart came up from behind, and he laid into me, and he spun me out. And like I said, there was some downforce on that car. There was some (laughs) weight on that car, and he hit me hard enough still to spin me out. And I've been waiting for my payback ever since, Steve. (laughs) I've been waiting for my payback against Tony Stewart ever since. So here's my payback. I'm going to challenge Tony to a 5K. How about that? Oh, I like that. You'll spin him out on that one for sure. Yeah, boy. Steve, every time I pick up one of these issues, I can just pick one out at random. Yeah. And it is amazing how packed they are with information. Rob Moroso won his third consecutive Bush Series race at Charlotte at a time when winning Bush Series races at cup tracks with cup drivers in the field was pretty much unprecedented. I mean, it happened here and there, but it didn't happen very often. So here was Rob Moroso driving for a family-owned team. It was owned by his father, Dick. He's a Bush Series guy. He's a young Bush Series guy. And he's going toe-to-toe with these cup guys and showing them what's what. Racing is what Rob was born to do. From the time he was a kid, Dick Moroso took a big hand in the direction his son was going to go. Much like Mark Merton was influenced by his father, Julian, in racing. So naturally, the long development period he had and the experience he gained as a young person benefited him greatly when he went into competitive racing. No doubt about it. And Steve, we all know what happened 
the yeah. following year. And that was very, very, very tragic. And the fact that I just can't get over is the fact that somebody else was lost as well in that accident in Mooresville after the race at North Wilkesboro. But in the end, with that not a factor, what made Rob such a good race car driver was he just young and full of vim and vigor and on fire and going for the gold and i've seen this many times since rob's sad departure from us he's just like a jeff gordon he's just like a mark martin these guys were born doing this stuff as i said earlier and they had all the right direction fathers or stepfathers either way and they had the desire to go do it so when they were very young they got opportunities most kids would never get. And they took advantage of those opportunities and as a consequence were very skilled and talented at a very young age. You can see the parallels all the way down. There was a scene on the circuit, Adam, a news feature kind of, about A.J. Foyt. And A.J. had had a premonition that something was going to happen to him on the track at Charlotte. He said that he hadn't even unpacked his suitcase at the hotel, and evidently he was kind of suspicious about various things. He didn't want anybody stealing his valuables at the track, so he'd hide them at different places. And he said in this story, I told crew chief Tex Powell before practice that if I got hurt, where I put my watch and ring and money. He said it was the first time in more than 30 years of racing that he'd told anybody where he had hidden his stuff. Obviously, something was on his mind. So, Steve, AJ crashes nearly head-on into the fourth-turn wall during practice for the cup race. He was knocked unconscious, but came around before finally being removed from the car. His brand-new helmet had a four- or five-inch-long crack in it, and he was flown by helicopter to Charlotte Memorial Hospital and was in intensive care for a couple of days. So, yeah. (laughs) He got a feeling, didn't he? I mean, Yeah, that's kind of strange. That is very strange, but... It's not the first time a driver has had some kind of premonition. We all know now the part of NASCAR lore that tells the story about Bobby Isaac. Bobby Isaac, yeah. And he he heard a voice tell him to get out of Bud Moore's car. Drove into the pits, drove into the garage area, got out of the car. And that was the last big-name team for which Bobby Isaac ever drove. So the premonition thing, man, I, I... you know, you might call it right out of the twilight zone or some kind of fantasy, but in racing, we've seen the proof that it's out there, that drivers do have some kind of sense of what is going to go wrong. And finally, Steve, there was some controversy, as we mentioned, over qualifying for the Bush Series. There were two rounds of qualifying, and only the fastest six Winston Cup drivers in each round could be locked into the field. And after that, four more cup drivers could make the race through a last chance event that would come to be known as the hooligan race. That's right. And of all the cup drivers that were entered in this race, none of them had anything good whatsoever to say about this format. No, they didn't. They thought it was very unfair that they were not able to qualify on a regular basis. Humpy devised this because the growing amount of complaints from the fans that were saying the cup drivers are ruining the bush series they're winning the races they're winning the pole everything else the bush series should be for bush series regular this was an attempt to 
display a race in which the cup guys didn't get all the advantages. Well, it turned out, advantages, they didn't even get a chance to qualify on a regular basis. And that is what they were so upset about. Not the fact that Humphrey was trying to keep them out of the race. He was trying to keep them out by taking away something that was always there. A new gimmick that didn't make any sense. Well, another factor I think that was at issue was the fact that they were concerned about being faster cars during the race and then having to come up through some of this field that might not have been as fast as they were. That's exactly right. Yeah, and having to run over people and run through people and getting spun out and tearing up equipment. Humpy Wheeler was quoted in this story as saying, the Winston Cup drivers let me have it with both barrels. Boy, are my ears burning. (laughs) I don't dare go into the garage. The drivers jump me on site over that qualifying setup. Now, if I'm a Winston Cup driver, I might go talk to Humpy Wheeler, but with his background in boxing, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think Tim Richmond learned his lesson. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this particular case, I think Humpy was telling us a lesson learned, that he realized that these guys had a point, and he was willing to concede that perhaps what he had done was not the right thing. Whatever the case might have been, pole sitter Michael Waltrip finished second to Rob. Del Jarrett was third. Harry Gant was seventh. Phil Parsons was tenth. And they were all cup guys. But Mark Martin, Sterling Marlin, Ken Schrader, Bobby Hillen, they all dropped engines. Darrell Waltrip had a vibration to put him out of the race. Dale Earnhardt, Rick Wilson, and Morgan Shepard all wrecked. So you might be able to make the case that this qualifying format actually had an impact on how the race wound up. Yeah, probably so. But again, the list of all these drivers, all Winston Cup drivers, who could not mount a charge on the victory because of the difficulties they had in the race is just part of what racing is. Doesn't matter where you qualify, doesn't matter how you qualify. If you're going to have this kind of a problem in a race, you're not going to win the race. And in this particular instance, that was a big handful of cup guys. Hi, I'm Ray Evernham, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. That about wraps up this episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. I'll see you next week. No, not quite. (laughs) Not quite. Oh, it was worth a shot. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the picks. I don't want to talk about the picks. I do. Want to I had too good a time last week. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Tell us what happened. Okay. So at Richmond, you picked Denny Hamlin. The hometown boy. I picked Ryan Blaney. Denny Hamlin finishes third, and Ryan Blaney doesn't even show up to the race. <laughs> <laughs> he was 17. <laughs> so under the current system, you now have an eight-point lead. Right. Under the Winston Cup system, designed by Bob Vladford, the good, true, honest, awesome, the way that we ought to go. Let's not overdo it, shall we? (laughs) Under the Winston Cup system, you now lead me by two points. The point is I lead you. (laughs) Okay. All right. So you have an eight-point lead under the current system. You have a two-point lead under the Winston Cup system. Going into the Roval... That's sharp. Right. So who's your pick? Okay. I'm going with Kevin Harvick. Now, why don't you pick Ryan? He won last year. Pick him again. Go ahead. I can't pick him again. 
We're in the oh, same. Right. We're in the that's same right. round. I'm okay. Gonna, I'm breaking right. rules again. I'm gonna go with Joy Logano. Oh, that was almost my pick. I knew that if I let you pick first, you were gonna say Joy. So you have Kevin Harvick. I have Joy Logano, and we'll see what happens come the Roval. Kevin, you are my man. 